Hello, everyone. You are listening to Studying Pixels, the award-winning podcast on game studies and video game culture in the category Cutest Podcast Mascot. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as you might I, have fig- I, <laughs> yes. I, do believe, I do believe that it still counts if we are the ones to give ourselves the award, correct? I think that's exactly how it works. Isn't that Good. how it works when the video game awards are given out and the video game industry just basically gives itself <laughs> <laughs> the awards? <laughs> That's right, yes. With the, <laughs> Stefan and Dan, the committee, in other words, have come together to award Stefan and Dan's podcast with the cutest yes. mascot. <laughs> the cutest Pixel Coon has won in the category cutest podcasting mascot, and rightfully so. Actually, uh, there are currently uh, several variations of Pixel Coon at work because we've got Toby on our team. As uh, some of you might know out there, he's in, at the moment working mostly behind the background, but you'll hear from him relatively soon as well. And he's currently working on two two Pixel Coon variations. One which has a syringe in order to call on people to vaccinate. And a second one that has probably just a little Christmas hat because, yeah, we're gearing into the final stages of this year, the boss fight of 2021, which is going to be Christmas. <laughs> I've stocked up on all of my inventory. I think I'm ready. And having Pixel Coon with a little Santa hat will certainly make the journey better. Yeah, it's like you can't identify any good boss fight by the fact that the music changes, and that's the same thing for Christmas. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, but before we get around to that, uh, we obviously want to talk about the event of the year, <clears throat> big thing, the Video Game Awards. The Game Awards, not Video Game Awards, I'm sorry. And also not the Spike Video Game Awards anymore, which was the previous original title of the format, right? That's right. Yes, just the Game Awards and uh, hosted by Jeff Keighley. It was, um, as we're recording this, just a few days ago. Um, and uh, we have a lot to talk about, I think. Yeah, it's going to be a packed show, probably just as packed as the Game Awards were in itself <laughs> because, wow, that show was long. I watched, I couldn't watch it live, obviously, because for me, that would be in the middle of the night I'm, I'm, it, because I live in Germany. I watched it afterwards and I had to like pause several times and take breaks because I think it was like a good three and a half hours or something with advertisements. It was, yeah. So you had the luxury of pausing because I did watch it live, um, which was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I basically blocked out the evening for it, but round about the two and a half, three hour mark, I said, oh, we're still going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it can feel really overwhelming because it's like, it is very fast paced. The Game yes. Awards have, I think they found a really good pacing. That's already a normative uh, remark here. We're going to have lots more co to come. But I want to just take that up front because, yeah, they're just, there's so many announcements. It's always, it cycles through between an award winning show where, you know, best RPG goes to, game of the year goes to, and so on. And then it, it like puts in so many announcements. And I think it's probably. Just time-wise, the announcements and new trailers, world premieres, they take up more time than the actual award show, right? Yeah, I think uh, Jeff Keighley had actually, maybe he tweeted or he was quoted in an interview before the Game Awards saying that the trailers and announcements would be at least 50%, if not more, of the Game Awards. So, you know, when you hear the term 
when you hear the title Game Awards, you would think, oh, it's an award show. And yeah, that's true. But it's also basically a showcase for new stuff coming out. Yeah, I, I must say that makes it different from most award shows that we have mm. with other media. Like, I'm not a, such a big fan of the Oscars. I, I don't watch it usually. But at the Oscars, you don't see, like, you know, <clears throat> a, a, announcements of new films that constantly, you know? No, it's it's much more, the Oscars anyway, is much more a celebration of the previous year. And I think be, maybe because games are such a fast-paced medium, the award show has to reflect that and kind of show all right, not only are we going to talk about the achievements of developers and the game creators, but also there's so much more coming out we have to talk about. Yeah, I also think that is cool. If To me, I find the Game Awards generally an enjoying evening, basically, because mm. of these awards where you, you reflect a little bit on the on the past year at the same time you have a lot to look forward to and it's always like every two minutes there's some kind of new announcement that you have never heard of before and then in between it's all like uh, glazed with you know entertainment acts and, and musical acts which are obviously like my favorite part of the show yeah it was a it was a lot of fun and i think that we're definitely going to have uh a lot to maybe gush over and a lot to question and a lot, <laughs> a lot to wonder about. But um, yeah, so stay tuned for a jam-packed show. I, and I would say just as jam-packed as the Game Awards relative to our time frame. Yes. Before we do that, we want to mention that Studying Pixels is, of course, a free and independent podcast. We thus rely entirely on your support. In comparison to the Game Awards, we have relatively few sponsors. For example, we're not sponsored by Spotify or Amazon <laughs> or something of the sort. Uh, instead, we have to entirely rely and we want to entirely rely on your support because we're making this show for you out there. That's why you can join us. You can support us by going to studyingpixels.com plus and join our Patreon program. And you will get three wonderful things for that. First, you'll get our sincere gratitude for supporting an independent show. Number two, you get a lovely sticker. It says, I am studying pixels. And you can put it like literally anywhere. It has the award-winning mascot Pixel Coon on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if you're like me, you can put it directly on your laptop because I received mine the other day and I'm very pleased with it. Oh, yeah, you received it already because obviously it yeah. is not a secret. We also are patrons of our own show because we mm. also put money on the table so that we can, you know, afford some things. And uh, you, you mentioned that you were relatively fond of the sticker, of its quality, right? I haven't, yeah. I haven't had it in my hands myself. It's it's very it's a very nice quality. So I was um, I'd gotten stickers online before, and so, you know, you kind of worry sometimes that they may be that kind of papery material that's hard to uh, rip off or it leaves residue or something. But uh, the Pixel Coon sticker, the I Am Studying Pixels sticker, is a really nice vinyl material. It laid completely flat on my laptop, and I'm wearing it proudly. So. Definitely a, a nice surprise in the mail. Oh, cool. I'm looking forward to that. The thing, the reason why I haven't got mine is that it's uh, the way Patreon works is that you get the sticker after three full pledges. And uh, obviously, because I'm in Germany, they need to ship it all the way over. So it takes a little bit more uh, time. Mm. But shipping is completely free. Like you don't have to pay anything, dear listeners, for, for shipping or such things. And the third thing that you get is a monthly plus episode. This is probably like the actual meat of our uh, Studying Pixels Plus program. 
And this month, we did a plus episode on how the ESRB works, so the Entertainment Software Rating Board. If you watch the Game Awards, then you see in front of every trailer something like likely mature 17 plus or T for teen, something of those, like these kind of labels. And we went into depth on how the ESRB works, how these labels are created. If you want to know more about that, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. Now, it was the first time in a long time that the Game Awards actually took place in presence which also was a very refreshing experience. I think especially to the musical act and the performances and the mood mm. and the vibe of the entire event, it is the world of a difference. Whether it takes place in, a, in an online stream where Geoff Keighley is just alone in a studio, which was the case in previous years, yeah. or now in an actual physical arena again. It was very, I think it was, it felt kind of like a homecoming in a way because, um, you know, if you're if you're plugged into the game industry, there are certain faces that you recognize, right? Like uh, I've <laughs> Tim Schafer showing up, or seeing Reggie uh, Fizame. You know, just all of these kind of big names. Um, we mentioned the Oscars before. There is a feeling of that where it's everybody that who's who of the industry coming together and actually being able to celebrate their medium in the same room together it makes a big difference. Yeah, it is this kind of mood also where you. Like when Geoff Keighley talks about the game It Takes Two, which uh, won several awards, mm. uh, where he just like, you know, points over because Joseph Farris, the creator of the game, sits <laughs> in the audience, you know, and is is cheering and so on. It just creates a whole different vibe. And it once more made it clear to me that, you know, Geoff Keighley, when he started out with his, you know, with the Spike Video Game Awards and, try, you know, hosting these like big events... I found that he was he had some quirks that were part of being a novice mm. uh, in hosting these kinds of events. And over the years, he has grown so much that Geoff Keighley by now, I'm I'm happy whenever he's on screen because he seems such like such a a charming, uh, authentic host for this event. Like you can see that this is not someone. The, the most, most terrible thing that happens with German award shows all the time is that. They would just hire people that are good at hosting events but have no idea about the subject. Oh, sure. And with, with Geoff Keighley, it's just different. You realize that he's probably played a whole lot of these games. And when he says on stage, I'm going to play Halo this weekend, then it's not a stunt. He probably just actually will do that, you know? Yeah, there, and there's also, I think, um, there's a charm to when uh, when he's chatting with uh, the representative from the company or one of the developers um, there's kind of an imbued awkwardness to both of them <laughs> because you can tell that, you know, as good a host as Keeley is, he's also still, he's, he's got his own quirks, like you mentioned. And those quirks, I think he's found the formula to playing those quirks off of the other people's quirks and making it seem just like a conversation between friends. So when he says, I'm really looking forward to playing this game, I believe he's actually going to sit down and play it when it comes out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I really appreciate Geoff Keighley, I must say. A per just like from on a personal level, I find him very charming. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, though, that something we need to mention and we reported on last week as well, is that Geoff Keighley got under quite some pressure. He got into quite some heat throughout the week leading up to the Game Awards because of the events 
happening at Activision Blizzard. We reported on them, harassment, workers walking out, pressure from the shareholders, and so on. Terrible story. And the thing is that the question was then, how will the Game Awards handle this? And there was a Kotaku piece that was actually based on a Washington Post interview. And this this Washington Post interview got relatively relatively little attention, but the Kotaku piece blow, blew up because it basically said that Geoff Keighley does not want to take sides in the case of Activision Blizzard. Because there's also an Activision Blizzard CEO on the advisory board of the Game Awards, so it's all a little bit complicated. There are some intricate connections between the Game Awards and Activision Blizzard. And so... Geoff Keighley got into quite some heat on Twitter and he tweeted out beforehand already that he made a statement uh, specifically addressing Activision and against harassment. And at the Game Awards, he actually started off, the, this is was pretty early in the show, like before even the first uh, trailers and so on were shown. Yeah. Um, he made a poignant statement against harassment and he said this, we're going to listen in for a moment. You know, the games we love are nothing without amazing developers, and that's why we do this show, to honor the creators of games. So welcome to all of you guys here today. So good to see everyone. But you know, we gotta be real, and we can't ignore the headlines that are out there. Game creators need to be supported by the companies that employ them. I think we all agree with that. So let me just say this before we get to any of the news or announcements or awards. We should not and will not tolerate any abuse, harassment, and predatory practices by anyone, including our online communities. We all love games, and if we want this industry to keep growing, we must build an even brighter and more inclusive future. The games we play and when the, the games that we love, they teach us that we can impact the world around us. And tonight, I call on everyone to do their part to build a better, safer video game industry. Speak out online. Vote with your time and with your dollars. Empower these world builders who are creating the future of all entertainment. And believe me, the future you're about to see looks absolutely incredible. That was Geoff Keighley, or Jeff Keighley, I suppose, speaking out against harassment at the Game Awards 2021. And I must say that, to me, this sounds like a most uh, genuine and direct statement. While I can understand that he does not specifically address Activision as such, we also have to say that it's not a problem that is exclusive to Activision Blizzard. So I think it is very... For me, it, I appreciate it very much that it's so clear and so prominently placed in this award show. I agree. I think that the word that came to my head directly after he said that was diplomatic. Um, I think he was... Uh, it, we had mentioned before when we were talking about what he might say that he's kind of between a rock and a hard place because he has to host these... He has to host this show, but he's also clearly a fan of the people who put these things together and respects the work that they do. So, you know, do you, do you call people out directly and kind of make this an antagonistic thing? Or do you just stand with the people who are being hurt by these actions? And I think that to me, what he said and when he said it at the beginning of the show 
was probably the the best way that he could have done that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, in fact, if he had called out Activision specifically, then I think this might have been um, good in the sense that uh, obviously it supports, directly supports the workers there and the people that have been victimized or have been, um, yeah, have become victims to crimes and harassments and transgressions. Mm. At the same time, though, uh, it is the case that harassment, um, sexism, exploitation, these are things that pervade the industry. And in the way he phrased it to me, it seems more that this was actually like a generalized statement. At the same time, though, and that's peculiar, that's something that people have picked up on Twitter, obviously, immediately, directly after this, yeah. they showed a Star Wars Eclipse trailer which actually is produced by Quantic Dream, a developer studio that in itself has already come under fire for some, well, I'm not sure whether they actually came under fire for, you know, harassment or, or something like that, but surely uh, rather, let's say, uh, toxic masculinity in the offices. Yeah, so I think that was that was the immediate kind of response, at least on Twitter, I know just because I was I was tweeting the show as it was happening, and I saw that pop up very quickly. And you know, I, I could you have put the Star Wars trailer a little later, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I think uh, point well taken, Internet. I understand that you know that does seem kind of like an about face, but to focus squarely on what Jeff Keighley said and you know, the, the importance of saying that right at the start, I, I still think it was a good statement. Yeah. And the more important statement even came all the way throughout the show to me, because the thing is mm. that diversity, inclusion, and standing against sexism and harassment, this is something that is not, it's not a task that can be accomplished with a statement up top. You need to show, and that's what people always demand, that it should be integrate, integrated into such an award show that celebrates the industry. And I think, honestly, while it could be stronger, surely, but there is already a strong emphasis on diversity throughout the entirety of the Game Awards. They have this category of the global gaming citizen, where they focus specifically on, you know, marginalized groups. And these are not small segments. We have to also acknowledge that, that besides all of the big announcements that we see, these videos where we see a glimpse into the life of someone who is, you know, part of a marginalized group who is stigmatized or discriminated against, um, illustrating a little bit what they do within the video game community or the video game industry and how the Game Awards supports that kind, uh, that kind of voice in the gaming community. I think that is very valuable and we, we, we should acknowledge that when we talk about the Game Awards, I think. I think so. And I think that, um, you know, uh, Keeley was very uh, keen to say throughout the show how, <clears throat> how much the show has changed in the past few years. And I think if you look back at, you know, the history of the Spike Video Game Awards and the kind of uber testosterone filled, you know, uh, setup that those had moving into uh, this year's show, which um, paid credence to LGBT issues and to, um, you know, black issues and all of these different kind of sociopolitical things that are going on in and around the video game industry. 
Um, that to me bodes well for the next few years of the Game Awards too. Yeah, it will hopefully eventually reach a point where it's not necessary anymore to specifically point this out mm. uh, because it should just be integral to the award show and to the video game industry and video game culture. We're not quite there yet. And that's why I appreciate the stance that the Game Awards is taking. Now, we've got a whole lot of awards that were dashed out, that were like, you yeah. know, they are really like, this is not, I, I'm not sure, at the Oscars, they also give out some awards more prominently and others less prominently, of course. But here, like at the Game Awards, it's literally the case that with some, they just like, here's the category, here are the nominees for, and the winner is, and here yeah. the nominees for, you know, it's just like every five seconds, another uh, winner. That's kind of the the breakneck speed of the Game Awards showing through because not only did they do that where they would have, you know, Keely on screen and as you say, he would have the nominees next to him on a um, a graphic. But then when a game would win like one of the big showcase awards, they would also say, and this game also won X, Y, and Z. <laughs> yeah. Know? So it yeah. really is. There's a lot of awards going on. They don't fit them all into the show because they've got so many other things to juggle. Um, but some some good winners this year, I think. Yeah. First and foremost, of course, the game of the year, which is what everyone is always curious about and the category that everyone always hates because <laughs> surprisingly, the game, the game that you want to win never wins <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but this game of the year award actually made me, I must say, quite happy, even though I haven't played it yet, because the game of the year is It Takes Two. Yes, I think I was I was excited because of how excited the creator was. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a a really funny uh, kind of acceptance speech, and I think that it seems that the the tenor of the room says, "Okay, it takes two definitely deserved it this year." I think it did because it is a it is a game that is quite surprising in how how strong it's, that's just from its reception, how strongly yeah. it's received and how well it is received. Uh, I mean, there were games uh, nominated that won in other categories, and that is, of course, a huge compliment. Like, none of these games that have been nominated are bad. This would be, the other nominees were Deathloop, Metroid Dread, Psychonauts 2, Ratchet & Clank, Rift Apart, and Resident Evil Village. And for example, Deathloop also won uh, it won best game direction which is also one of the most high profile awards that you can win at that show. That was also a very heartwarming acceptance speech. Um and there was a great joke where the the director said, "I know I only have 30 seconds, but could we loop it?" <laughs> he took the shot. <laughs> he took the shot. If 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 you make a game about uh, time loops and you have the chance to make a looping joke, then do it. Go for it. <laughs> you, can, yeah. you can never go wrong. <laughs> the best narrative went to Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I, this is one that I have to check out. I kind of, uh, I don't know about you, but I avoided it because the Avengers game was so poorly received that mm. I, 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 I like these movies well enough. You know, I'm not super invested. I'm a big Spider-Man fan. Um, and I would say that the next one after that that I'm really invested in is the Guardians of the Galaxy. So after I saw this, I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. 
Yeah, I feel the same way for a different reason. The thing is that I'm completely disengaged from most superhero narratives mm. and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, I've seen the first <clears throat> film and I found it like sometimes a little bit funny, but it's not really my thing. Yeah. But now, especially because that it won in the category best narrative. This, this, mm. this is not best action game or something of the sort, but best narrative. So I think because of its narrative emphasis, it might be something that I really need to, to dig into. Best yeah, art direction went to Deathloop as well. Best score, music, went to Near Replicant. I have to say, um, I was very pleased with that. And uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I was laughing at my television because when Jeff Keighley gave that award to Near Replicant, I was saying, say the full title, say the full title. <laughs> and he, he didn't read the version 1.2247, et cetera. And I was really expecting him to. <laughs> well, maybe I can make up for that now. Best score music goes to <laughs> Near Replicant version 1.2247448713. There you are. Yoko Taro, have a beer on us. <laughs> best audio design is Forza Horizon 5, a game that uh, I must say I'm not into racing games all that much, but it seems fantastic, honestly. Mm. Best performance, Maggie Robertson, Resident Evil Village. This was, I think, uh, so she she played Lady Dimitrescu, the tall vampire lady, um, and this was maybe the only award that I was actually rooting for somebody in. Um, all the other ones I was just interested to see who would win, but I was so glad that she won. And when she went up to get her acceptance, boy, she is that character. Yes. She just radiates Lady Dimitrescu. And actually, I mean, who else could have won considering that Lady Dimitrescu, when she was announced, she broke the internet. Yes. Yeah. And continues <laughs> to do so, I think. <laughs> yes. We've got, we're not going to discuss all of the awards. Obviously, we're going through these things very quickly because we want to just draw some highlights to other aspects of the show. That's why just in a rapid fire motion, Games for Impact is Life is Strange, True Colors. Best ongoing game is Final Fantasy XIV Online, where just the Endwalker expansion, expansion just recently released, right? Mm. I was very happy to find that Kena Bridge of Spirits won best indie game and best debut indie game because that is really well-deserved. I was excited for that too. And maybe the last one that we can read out is the best mobile game, which went to Genshin Impact, unsurprisingly so. Or as the uh, presenter called it, Genshin Impact. <laughs> Genshin. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. I don't know how to, is it, I don't know how to pronounce it. This is like... Uh, I'm pretty sure it's, it's Genshin. And I was... Uh, I was just laughing because I, with any award show, I just assume that they have a rehearsal where they say, this is how you say the title of the game. But sometimes it, it, it flubs anyway. Maybe it's the big question of whether it's GIF or JIF. Ah, okay. Well, we'll never, we'll never settle it here. We'll never settle case. it. It's GIF, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, these were some of the awards. Um, if you want to, dear listeners, uh, go through the awards just briefly, I think it makes more <clears throat> sense that if you want to know who won in which category, then you can go pop into our show notes and there you find the full list in an IGN article that we've linked uh, that we also used for the show to just get an overview uh, because we're not going to talk about all the awards. Instead, we want to draw some, uh, like a focus on specific aspects of the show, some aspects that really struck us in the positive, some that struck us in the negative. These are highlights 
and lowlights of the show. And I want to say just up top that for me, it was really impressive to see, we spoke about how densely packed the Game Awards are already, how huge the video game industry and video <clears throat> game culture is by now. Mm. Honestly, I was baffled by the fact that I knew so little that all the time there were like new games and I was like, oh, I never heard about this before. Like I can, of course, imagine it in my mind and I have some points of reference that I can draw from. But there's so many things I do not know and I find that impressive. I had the exact same moment, maybe about an hour in, where I just said, I'm so glad I'm watching this because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have known to play these games otherwise. I wouldn't have had the exposure. And I think in, in previous years, um, I've watched the entirety of the Game Awards, but in other years, I've just seen clips or trailers of games that interested me. And I would say, if you're a fan of video games, it's worth it to watch the entire thing to broaden your horizons a bit. Yeah. Even if you don't necessarily want to play the games, I think just once in a while, it is worth it to, you know, just um, look outside the box a little bit or to, um, yeah, broaden your horizon, look at video games that other people might really enjoy that are not necessarily for you because inevitably out of these like 400,000 announcements, there are maybe like 20 in there where you say like, oh, this is really cool or this is something I'm interested in. Maybe five that you say, those I'm definitely going to play. So the vast majority is not going to be catering specifically to your tastes. But I think it's always nice to be aware of what's going on. I agree. I think that um, not just the games either, but the the Twitch streamers that they mentioned or um, the different kind of... Uh, um, activist groups that they were showcasing. Um, it was it was really cool to see how widespread gaming culture is. That being said, there's also a low light that I have, something that perpetually irritates me about uh, <laughs> video game showcases, and that is when the when there's so little gameplay to see. Yeah, because the thing is that. I do understand you want to have a really cool trailer to present the concept of your game, the look and feel of your game. But ultimately, I think, especially because it is a video game award show, I would sometimes love to just see a little bit more of actual gameplay. Of Like, you know, it doesn't have to be someone literally playing on stage, but when, it's, when it comes to announcements, then I'm most curious about, you know, show me the gameplay, show me what the game roughly looks and feels like that's what i really want to know it was very telling to me that uh jeff keely would say this is not a cinematic this is gameplay and he said that uh at prior to showing a number of different trailers um and i was excited about that but then in the back of my mind i was thinking well does that mean if he doesn't say that it's gameplay that it is a cinematic and i think that's probably the assumption you should make <laughs> Yeah, I think it's yep. probably almost always a cinematic. And one of the exceptions that you just alluded to as well, there was Hellblade 2, which was uh, trailered relatively at the beginning. It's not a new announcement. We've seen announcement trailers before. But uh, this time it was, as Keely emphasized, actual gameplay. Yep. And that's why this was also one of the absolute standout trailers of these, of this video, of these video game awards, of these game awards this year. Because it was just one consistent sequence that you would watch where you can, you don't have the button prompts and stuff, okay? So although uh, Hellblade never had button prompts, so who knows? It might just be that it looks exactly like that. 
but that was surely impressive. It was. And I think, uh, I, I would say, uh, chilling that trailer, the, um, the content of that sequence that is, is gameplay of the giant sort of crawling through the cave. I mean, if that's, if that's what we can expect in that game, I I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I'm very excited. And at the same time, it breaks my heart that it isn't Microsoft exclusive. I know. <laughs> mm, because the uh, thing the is Sony that boys over here. <laughs> yes, I'm 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 actually studying madness in video games and Hellblade is essentially about madness. I'm very curious to see how this will manifest. I'm a bit worried as well because the thing is that in the first Hellblade game, we never really saw other people. Mm. Uh, so it could have very well been possible that most of the game takes place in Senua's mind, for example. Now in this one though, we see other people around her. Like there's more more action, more going on. And that's why I am a bit worried. I just wonder how much are they going to focus on the psychosis and mm -hmm. on the authenticity that they claim for this representation of psychosis. Irregardless of that, I do not doubt that it's going to be a really amazing game. Yeah. There's also one standout example where I actually enjoyed the CGI trailer probably a lot more than the actual gameplay and this is dying light 2 oh yes that that was uh that was pretty impressive they had a trailer like i must say techland which is the developer studio of dying light and before i think they'd done a dead island if i if i don't if i'm not wrong about <laughs> this infamous trailer uh infamous trailer <laughs> yeah yeah infamous trailer and I, I just wrote down in my sheet like could it be that Techland has mastered the art of the trailer. Because well, <laughs> that, that Dying Light trailer, at the beginning, it seemed a little bit ordinary to me, but it was like this beautiful mix of Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. Um, no, sorry, not Smashing Pumpkins. I apologize. The Pixies. The, right? Pixies. the Pixies. Where's my mind? Yeah. Where's my mind? Yeah. Of the Pixies, where's my mind? And several, like, you know, action things layering over one another, but at the same time, always leaving some space for some human interaction and for some genuine, like, you know, vibration of characters. It's, yeah. oh, it's, it was so tense. Well, it's funny that you, you met, you, I jumped on Smashing Pumpkins because when I was watching it, it made me feel like, this is such an old reference, but it made me feel the same way that the, uh, the Watchmen film trailer did, which yeah. had a Smashing Pumpkins song in it. Um, just this feeling of, uh, desperation and clinging to humanity. So, Again, it's a cinematic trailer, so who knows how representative it is of the actual game. But if that's any allusion to the narrative, I do think that that's a pretty intriguing late-stage zombie game that we can look forward to. Feels like that, yeah. yeah. What have you brought when, regarding highlights and lowlights? I'm very curious. Yes, yeah, so um, one of my highlights, uh, it, it had me almost dancing on the couch, was um, as soon as... Uh, Keichiro Toyama's name was mentioned and a new game from the creator of Silent Hill. I was so excited. And I think that the title has me very excited because of how weird it is. This new game, Slitterhead. Oh, oh it, it looks uh, like a Japanese body horror um, sort of urban horror story taking place in Tokyo. And it, it, it reminds me of the work of um, of Junji Ito. It reminds me of the manga Parasite. Um, 
it's it's got so many different visual connections to so many great horror properties. I I can't wait to see what comes of that. Yeah, I definitely made note of that as well. The trailer mm. was pretty intense and it had this featured like always, you know, like monsters that would then, you know, basically draw back into people's faces, like playing in yeah. reverse, like yeah. a monster breakout playing in reverse so that the face would gradually restore itself to seeming normal. And I think it it just looked so eerie and weird. And it was not like relying on, you know, just, you know, shooting around in the dark or something. But it was, oh, I don't know. It seemed very interesting. This is going to be called Slitterhead. And I definitely have that on my list. And one last thing that gets me very excited is that not only is, is Toyama, uh, the creator of it, but Akira Yamaoka, the composer yeah. of Silent Hill, is going to be in it uh, mm. doing the music. So... I uh, it feels very much like a potential return to form. Akira Yamaoka. Oh, I love Beautiful. I love I love the his compositions on Silent Hill. He he's the mm. person who's responsible for these like you know for the melancholy the melancholy of the Silent Hill soundtrack, but also or the score rather, but also this industrial yeah. kind of hammering in this in the other world in in Silent Hill, and. I think that he's just, he's a fantastic composer for such a, you know, such a horror game. Very, very distinctive sound. I think very few people sound like his eclectic interests. While we speak about sound, may I briefly mention that? To me, an absolute highlight, I already mentioned this briefly, but I want to just say something for a moment on it, is the fact that there are all these musical performances in the show. Yeah. And that there's the, the Game Awards Orchestra. Uh, which plays several times throughout the show, and at the at the end they play like a medley of all the the soundtracks of the Game of the Year nominees, and then there are additional performances that come in. Like Imagine Dragons was there. It, the, the show started off with a piece by Sting. Yeah, that's right. That was just super surprising. I was like, eh, is that is that Sting? <laughs> I well, I remember thinking. Um... What a what an interesting tone we're setting for the Game Awards in 2021 yeah. with Sting coming out and yeah. really singing a, a very melancholic, beautiful song. Indeed, indeed. And even like the announce, there's one announcement that really stood out to me because of its music, and that was the Cuphead announcement. Awesome. So Cuphead, <laughs> this, you know, this like um it's like an, an, an action game, like a side-scrolling action game, and it is in the style of, let's say, 30s 1930s to 1950s comics and you know early animations hand-drawn mm. animations and uh, they had like a wonderful performance musical performance which was then followed by a super cute trailer um, in which they announced that they're gonna have dlc for the game and dlc it stands for delicious last course i it that was such a a fun musical performance with the uh, the trio singing that song, and I think um, Cuphead is so uh, is so stylized that nothing short of that would make sense for a DLC announcement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that uh, if I may briefly go into a low light, um, <laughs> I think this is just something. There, there are a lot of fantastic video game announcements a lot of great games winning awards um someone someone needs to flash the red light on these sketches that are done <laughs> on on stage 
because mm. when I, I think that Simu Liu is a wonderful actor, I think he's a funny guy normally. <laughs> that sketch that they did where he came out to announce an award and he was supposedly watching Halo footage on his phone, that went on for we keep saying that this was a breakneck show that stopped me right in my tracks that yeah that sketch it was a slog he constantly kept looking at his phone pretending like he's watching a halo stream because he actually wants to do that instead of being at the game awards and while i get the pun it yeah. was like the, the message got across in the first like 30 seconds and it just kept going on throughout the entire thing and it didn't go anywhere. It was like, okay, the joke you, has been made now. You know, you can just drop it now. <laughs> you you don't want your audience to ever say the phrase, we get it. And that's yeah. that's what was happening. That or um, the Suicide Squad uh, killed the Justice League trailer, which I thought was uh, pretty cool looking. Um, the new endeavor by Rocksteady, the people behind the uh, Arkham Asylum games. Um that trailer was really good, but um, the idea to have somebody come out as a character, uh, Amanda Waller, to kind of say, Jeff Keighley, how dare you show this footage? Good idea, but not so good in practice, maybe. Just another example of a little too long. A little too long, a little bit over the top. She, It was like her character is supposed to be intimidating, but in that very moment... Nobody really felt intimidated. <laughs> so I think the funniest puns in, in that in that sketch just came from Joff Keeling when when he was like, oh, is she gone? You know, it's is like she gone. Yeah. Yeah. Like the these more it's, they seem more like improvised and you know, a little bit um quirky. So I totally get that. And at the same time, there was one little bit that stood out to me, which was I think it was arguably my favorite moment of the entire game awards. Um I love Jim Carrey. Oh. <laughs> I don't know whether I mentioned this before. <laughs> yeah. It should, be, it should be said, this is not in the category of things I thought were not funny. This was the one time I laughed out loud at this at the awards. Well, yeah, maybe we can just play it a little bit, just play a short skit of it, because Jim Carrey, he's obviously part of the uh, new Sonic movie, well, of the first one as well, and of the, the second one, and plays Dr. Robotnik. And he gave a small little speech. Uh, he was not present, but he recorded a video that he sent over to the Game Awards. And it's just ingenious. So maybe we give a brief listen to that. Hello, everyone. And hello, Ben. I'm sorry I couldn't be there with you, but I look forward to meeting all of your avatars in the metaverse where we can really get to know each other. Hey, before you see this exciting new Sonic trailer, I'd like to pass on a word of advice that my Scottish grandfather gave to me when I was just a boy. He said, son... Don't grade it in the grinder. Don't do it, son. Don't grade it in the grinder, boy. Grade it, by all means, grade it till the cows come home. But don't grade it in the grinder. And then to drive the point home, he put his hands around my neck and he squeezed real hard and he said, Don't do it, son. Don't grade it in the grinder. Are you listening to me, boy? Wow. Yeah. Inspiring words. That was Jim Carrey at the Game Awards imitating his Scottish grandfather. Don't grade it in the grinder, everybody. By all means, grade it. <laughs> it's just such a delicious, delicious piece. And apart from being like super funny, genuinely funny, 
I also thought, wow, Sonic is really making a comeback. Like, every time I think Sonic it basically fades into the background, that blue hedgehog comes out of nowhere. And it's like this another film and they announced Sonic Frontiers which seems like a, a Sonic game that very much reminded me well of a Nintendo game to be fair yeah. it reminded me of a mixture between Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild more like open world kind of focused looks surprisingly good I mean we'll have to wait and see how it actually plays comes out holiday 2022 so it's a bit off it's a bit away still but uh, Sonic just keeps surprising me for some reason it's the it's the weirdest series because it oscillates between just entirely almost unplayable to yeah. incredible, you know, nostalgic. Like Sonic Mania was an incredible game. And I think that I'm actually excited that this isn't coming out. Sonic Frontiers isn't coming out for a while because that to me means that they're actually putting time into it. And it seems that when they put time into the Sonic games, they turn out very charming. Yeah, it's a very on and off series because uh, like with the Mario series, you can say there's barely a bad game in that series. Whenever you, you when you buy a game and it has Super Mario on it, then usually it's good. Like if it's of the main Super Mario series. Yeah. With Sonic, it's like quite a gamble. Like you should better read some reviews beforehand to get a feel for And if it's a 3D game, then you should generally be cautious. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe they can make it work. They, they're surely... They surely do not give up, and they have an audience and a following that seems quite dedicated. So I'm actually looking forward to Sonic Frontiers to see how this one's going to turn out. I am too. I think it it pays to have a uh, uh, a fan base that's a little bit in on the joke, because I think that perpetuates it. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. I've got one last low light, and that is that I think the Game Awards should rethink their definition of the term world premiere. <laughs> now technically true however technically true. <laughs> technically true the thing is though what i noticed they were doing is they world premiered trailers for games so this means every trailer that has not been shown somewhere else was a world premiere and what that means is everything almost everything is a world premiere right and this is kind of weird because it, the, the term world premiere kind of loses its meaning in that sense. Not only because it's applied to almost everything, like you don't even notice it anymore when it's world premiere because it's like all the time. But also because I do think a world premiere is when a new game is announced that has not been announced anywhere. It's not a new trailer, but an actual new game. And I think that's when we should use the term world premiere. Maybe we can agree on that. Yes, I do agree on that. I would say that uh, it loses its luster a little bit if everything is a world premiere. Yeah. Especially, especially since they have a title card that pops up every time. Mm. And you you kind of anticipate that at some point it'll say something different, but it never does. <laughs> it's always just <laughs> Not world, a world premiere. premiere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I should say that um, my other low light from... Uh, this is just a personal low light because I'm such a big Zelda fan. Um, I, I was uh, uh, personally upset that there wasn't any additional news on the Breath of the Wild sequel, but uh, Nintendo notoriously plays things very close to their vest, so I wasn't, uh, I guess I wasn't surprised, I was just sort of bummed out. Um, there was a, a, a kind of 
message from Nintendo towards the end of the show that said, so much to look forward to in 2022 and kind of flashed games that we knew about that are coming out. So hopefully more information will come out in the uh, coming months. Yeah, they will do like a, first of all, there will be like another epic trailer and then there will be like a Nintendo treehouse thing where they show yeah. like a super specific and niche thing about it. Like for example, when you can, when it has a new mechanic where you can now, I don't know, fish or something, and then they will just <laughs> show you like for 20 minutes how, how you can fish in this game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think there were a lot of things to look forward to, and the Game Awards always remind me a little bit of that. Like they have, it has two effects on me. One is I realize that I need to definitely keep an eye on some things that I either forget or that I'm just too busy thinking about when I do other things. Of course... We're all looking forward to Elden Ring. It won the category of most anticipated game two years in a row now. And mm. it's going to come out February 25th. So we're relatively soon. We will know uh, how how good it actually is. But I also realized I need to look forward to Forspoken, which is one of the most interesting combinations of, let's say, a contemporary aesthetics. Because it's like a, it's, it is set in a contemporary setting contemporary urban setting where though a young lady basically gets sucked into a fantasy world that mm. is very kind of you know it seems to me almost like game of thrones ish with uh, over the top fantasy as well yeah i guess you would call it high fantasy right the idea high fantasy you're in a, a world that has its own countries and rules and magic system and yeah very game of thronesy i think um the trailer got my attention. I, I don't know that I had heard of that before this this trailer. So, I think it was, it was yeah, it, it was announced before at some kind of event. I think I'm not sure whether it was a PlayStation event or something, uh, but that's definitely something I'm looking forward to, mm. uh, just as much as uh, a Plague Tale Requiem. I really like the first a Plague Tale. I don't think it's an immaculate game, but I think it's an interesting approach. And I'm curious to see what they do now with the basically approval and the additional funding that they have at their disposal. I think uh, there's there's lots to look forward to there. And of course, Alan Wake too. Huh? We should mention that as well. Very exciting. Um, yeah. And I also think exciting that they specifically are making it as a survival horror game. And because uh, yes. they, they called this out and it's true. Uh, there's definitely horror elements to the first Alan Wake, but it is an action game. Um, and so, uh, well, I should say the Alan Wake from, uh, just a few years ago that was recently remastered. If you go all the way back to Alan Wake, then I guess that had more of a point and click style, um, uh, to it, but it seems like they're, uh, as every survival horror game is taking some inspiration from the PT, uh, playable demo <laughs> with the, the lighting and the character design, um, the approach to the game. Very exciting. That you can sense the impact of uh, Hideo Kojima in yes. like almost everything that is announced these days. Yeah, <laughs> almost everything, including even when he just suddenly, of course, there can't be any game awards without Kojima. Yeah, and that's he, why he suddenly just appeared on the screen. Yes, he did, as if he, <laughs> as if you know, he had taken it over. Um, but yes, he uh, he was there to promote his friend Guillermo Guillermo del Toro's film Nightmare Alley, um, which, I mean, in keeping with Del Toro's oeuvre, it looks like it's taking a lot from Lovecraft and also from um, Stephen King and all these great uh, horror stories. 
and there was definitely some teasing about Silent Hill between the two of them. So survival horror, Kojima's influence, uh, it's it's always permeating the Game Awards. Ah, <laughs> uh, Silent Hill, that was a great series. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone were to make another one of them? Mm. Hmm. Guillermo del Toro said. <laughs> yes, stroking <laughs> his so beard. Charming. Honestly, if I basically look back at the entirety of the Game Awards, at the entirety of the show, um, I get there. There's some criticism. For example, I also joined. I joined the Twitter space because you can now have these Twitter live conversations, uh, similarly to how Clubhouse works. They basically mm. just they basically just adopt the Clubhouse idea, and uh, it was a, a space in which Geoff Keighley was speaking to people about the Game Awards and. Coincidentally, I heard how they were discussing the question of ads and the fact that there are a lot of advertisements. I mean, of course, there are a lot of ad- the entire show is an advertisement, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but in between, in between, there are even more advertisements that are not specifically related to you know the game awards, but that are you know advertisements for uh, mostly video games, sometimes also other products, just like with any kind of private television thing, and people were just saying like, wouldn't it be possible to reduce the amount of ads a little bit? It's like quite a lot. And Geoff Keighley, he responded and he was, he was very approachable in this. And he said like, yeah, that they've been thinking about it as well. And they notice, Mm. they know of course that it's pervaded by advertisements, but he said, well, we also got a very expensive show that we need to finance somehow. Yeah, of course. That's what we need to keep in mind. It's like, I don't know whether any one of you has ever tried, you know, basically hiring an orchestra for such an award show, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That that costs a lot of money with pieces that the orchestra needs to study. And it's like, wow, this thing in in itself is so impressive. But also the thing is, it's pompous, but it makes the show special that there is such a thing like a Game Awards orchestra. I think that it's... um... Whenever we're talking about, I'm going to step on a soapbox here for a moment, if you don't mind, but I think. Yeah, please go ahead. Here's the box. Thank you very much. And uh, anytime we, let me put it this way. The video game culture sphere, everybody who plays video games and loves them and studies them, works on them in any capacity. I think it is very easy for us to be cynical about video games and the industry and the kind of commercialism behind it, that's very easy. And we, uh, it's certainly worth doing in certain circumstances when um, that kind of commercialism calls for criticism. That being said, I think that the Game Awards is a very kind of special thing that feels like it's put together by people who really like video games and love the medium have a big respect for it, um, and who want to see the people who, you know, we see kind of namelessly and facelessly go by in the, you know, minutes of credits at the end of the game, get their day in the sun. And so if those people get their day in the sun is necessitated by showing some, you know, uh, live streaming app ads and things like that, or maybe showcasing some games that are coming out in the coming year that we can get excited about. I kind of feel like that's the entire point of the award show <laughs> is to be excited about the medium. So it's different from an E3 or a Sony presentation or a Nintendo Direct where it's a company directly hawking its wares to you. It feels much more like, isn't it cool that we get to do this and engage with this medium 
and here's everything to be excited about all in one long breakneck uh, package. Yeah, it is curated. It is pretty well presented. I would say mostly well presented. And just, you know, it's it's a little bit like Christmas in many ways that mm. uh, once a year, when it comes around, you can look forward to it and you can enjoy it. And if I apologize, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I'm receiving a phone call in the middle of a podcast. How terrible. <laughs> uh, and I was just ramping up to my final words. Oh, my yes. God. It's all been ruined. <laughs> Dan, we have to cancel the show. <laughs> That's it. Pull the plug. That's it. That's it. Pull the plug. We're moving on to some side questing. <laughs> it is time for some side quests. And as you know, dear listeners, we scavenge through the internet every week and search for interesting stories. We also play lots of video games and bring our impressions to the table. And we've got three small stories for you prepared today. Number one. Nintendo hacker Gary Bowser agrees to 10... <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> uh, Bowser strikes again at Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though <laughs> Gary Bowser, he has not abducted the princess, but he has hacked Nintendo and he now has agreed, well, agreed, he has been sentenced to a $10 million fine in total. No, wait, not in total. There's several lawsuits. Let me unpack this. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what happened is that since 2013, a person named Gary Bowser has been actively working in a group called the Team Executor with X-E-C. It's a typical hacker group name. Yes, very cool. Very cool. And <laughs> as cool as they are, they created, quote, illegal circumvention devices, end quote, which means they created devices that you could plug into your console, for example, your Nintendo Switch or your SNES Mini, and you could then play illegal ROMs. So you could download, illegally download games from the internet and play them on these consoles. These devices, they had names such as SX Pro and SX Lite. For example, Nintendo, when they made the Nintendo Switch Lite, they tried to shut the door on these hackers, but they just found another way and made the SX Lite. Bowser, Gary Bowser, he also had a, a website for ROM distribution entailing 13,630 games, which had been illegally made available on this website. And Nintendo... Of course, they had been after him for quite a while, after this hacker group and any retailers that sold these devices. And in September 2020, Gary Bowser was arrested eventually in the Dominican Republic and then deported to the US. Also, there was another accomplice of him, Max Luarn, who was arrested in Canada, and Yuaning Chen from China, who is still at large at the moment. There has been a civil lawsuit brought against uh, Bowser by Nintendo, and he has at the same time also been charged by a federal lawsuit, so by the state. And he pleaded guilty to that federal lawsuit at the end of October in 2021, and now he has to pay 4.5 million US dollars, and he potentially faces another 10 years in jail. Because the thing is, because if you plead guilty to a charge that does not that does not mean that you're going to be acquitted for it, right? right. Uh, it means that basically 
you're going to get pun punished still, but your, your penalty might be lowered. And it means that the other charges brought against him, they basically, uh, they ba I think they've basically dropped them um, in exchange for these 4.5 million US dollars that he's going to pay. And now, this is basically the small update that I wanted to bring. The civil lawsuit, which was led by Nintendo of America, has also been settled because Gary Bowser has agreed to pay another 10 million US dollars to Nintendo in order, basically, this is like a the set the idea of the settlement. We addressed this before. Is basically Gary Bowser says, I'm gonna pay you 10 million US dollars, and in exchange, we basically settle this here, and there will be no further prosecution because of these accusations. Now, in total, that means Gary Bowser faces a payment of 14.5 million US dollars and up to 10 years in jail. So that's a hefty penalty, although we have to consider that this court document, which we also have linked in the show notes, it also reveals that this team executor that he was part of earned, quote, at least tens of millions of dollars from the sale of its piracy-enabling devices, from which Bowser took around 320k per year, end quote. So, well, he's not poor. Right. And it's it's not like he's a Robin Hood <laughs> taking games from the rich and giving them to the poor. There, There is a profit motive here, right? Of course. Of course yeah. there is. And I think it's, it's a little bit, it's an interesting story because um, on an individual level, it points to the fact that hacking a console and making ROMs available can be can come with a hefty penalty and it's surely a crime if you think about it how much money that is and how many years in we don't know whether he will actually have to be in prison for 10 years but it's definitely a possibility and so you really really want to be cautious when you consider oh should i upload a rom on here or should i uh, run the next rom website because nintendo nintendo will come after you notoriously i think there this was um Oh boy, maybe six or seven years now at this time. But I remember uh, there were, you know, dozens of ROM hack websites that would um, upload ROMs of video of Nintendo games and maybe alter them. There's a really um, impressive uh, ROM hack scene for Pokemon games where yeah. people would, you know, they would take Fire Red and they would hack it in a way that you could catch Pokemon from different generations or they would you know, make their own stories and narratives in these games. And those along with any other sites that were, um, that had ROMs for download were really hit hard by Nintendo. And so it's, it's one thing to generally talk about uploading video games, but especially when it's Nintendo, they, they are very litigious about their games being, uh, uploaded elsewhere apart from their own stores. Yeah, I, in the context of this story, I actually stumbled upon a meme. So this is a this is a meme. This is not a real story, but I found it very funny. It was <laughs> a good one. It was tweeted, and it, it it reads it reads as follows: What a touching story! A young boy from Thailand dreamed about having a Nintendo Switch. Due to not having good financial conditions, he fabricated his own using cardboard and markers. His father moved filmed him and posted the video on social media. After going viral, it got to the eyes of Nintendo's CEO, who went to Thailand personally 
and sued the boy for $2.5 million of copyright infringement. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it is so funny because it is not true, but it could be true. (laughs) (laughs) In every joke, there's a little bit of truth truth. in that. Exactly. Yeah, I I don't know. We've talked about... um, We've talked about this issue before with people manipulating um, video games in one way or another. And I think the uh, there's one part of me that says if these games are inaccessible to people, then I, I side more on the um, I side more with the people who are making those games accessible. But this is kind of a, a murkier area because this guy and his team were making a pretty big profit off of other people's work. <laughs> exactly. So, that's a problem. It is the typical, I would say, cat- the, the problem with the categorical imperative that we face here. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Going back to some philosophy courses, moral <laughs> philosophy, Kantian ethics. Yes, because with Bowser. The, with Bowser, yes. Because the problem is just... That, I mean, it is a structural problem of capitalism that people are excluded from goods, you know, and even if that those goods are, you know, like cultural participation and such things. However, right. uh, making a business off of, you know, basically these illegal activities is at the same time also a reaffirmation of that capitalist structure. Mm. So it's a little bit difficult because I don't know. It's hard to navigate. You would probably run into some logical contradictions if you were to properly apply the categorical imperative <laughs> to this case, which I'm not going to do here because I don't want to put anyone to sleep. Maybe that's maybe that's something for another. Maybe we could do that. Maybe we could do an episode once where we just think about would it be a violation of the categorical imperative to pirate video games? I I think that would be. We we could finally hammer out our position on it because I feel like yes. we keep we keep coming up against these situations where we say, I kind of see, but this one is a little worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Let's do an episode of someone in the future. I'm going to note it down. Um, basically, m- the moral philosophical perspective on pirating video games. Number well, two. Yes, if we can go into uh, a bit of a clearer example of a moral issue. <laughs> Let's talk about NFTs. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So uh, we have this story um, from Ubisoft, uh, Ubisoft Quartz. Um, they're dipping their toes into the non-fungible token or NFT market, and people are pretty upset about it. So in short, um, there was an announcement trailer that went out on YouTube um, by Ubisoft for the Ubisoft Quartz platform. And my understanding of this is that this was their way of uh, basically introducing NFTs to its games. Um, they bill it as the fr- they bill Ubisoft Quartz as the first platform for playable and energy efficient NFTs in AAA games. So before we get into why this got a lot of backlash. Is it worth maybe reiterating what NFTs are and why this is a strange thing for a video game company to be doing right now? I would be very grateful for that because honestly, I have heard several explanations of what NFTs are, but I still don't have a proper grasp on what that actually is. might be that I'm getting old, but I just don't really understand what that means. 
I well, if if you're getting old, then I am too, because it's uh, it's something that I I understand the mechanics of it, but I don't understand the um, the appeal. So, very generally speaking, non fungible tokens NFTs. Um, a good way to think about them is uh, digital art that has its own sort of isolated existence. So, Pixelcoon, for example, a mascot Pixelcoon. Well, here's here's the interesting thing. So let's take Pixelcoon as an example, right? Yes, so please. R- right now, Pixelcoon is not NFT. And the reason is because we it's it's just an image, and technically, you know, we we own the image, and it's part of our our podcast and everything. But some enterprising young goon could take an image of Pixelcoon, manipulate it in some way, and then. All that particular image, a non-fungible token, and sell it and basically say, this is its own piece of art, and it only this is the only one that, ex- that exists in this particular way because it's connected to a particular um, blockchain sort of I- identification number. So it is so, the idea anyway, is that it is so specific to the person who owns it that that particular item, even though Stefan, you and I could right click and save that image and have a copy of that image, people with NFTs would argue that is not the NFT. That saved copy of the image is just a copy of it. I actually own this particular item. Ah, uh, so this is a very interesting thing because there are uh, there are two bells that ring in my head. One mm. is. Um, Walter Benjamin, uh, philosopher, <laughs> <laughs> philosopher of the, the mid twentieth century, he was very much into analyzing the aura of a piece of art, yes. and he said when there's like in the in the time of like original art, where you would just like let's say paint a painting and that would be it. Or you have a theater performance, and that theater performance in that very moment, that is it. Um, Then this gives the artwork a certain aura, whereas Mm. if you have reproducible art, if you have like posters printed everywhere, or you record that uh, theater play and you distribute it on DVD or you make a film or something like that, that profoundly changes the nature of the artwork and deprives it of its aura. He thinks the deprivation of the aura is actually a big potential, but he points out that that is what's happening. And I feel like, and that's the second bell that rings, that now that you explain it to me in that way, I understand that we have lost the idea of the differentiation between an original and a copy in the digital age. Because if I have a file on my computer, I can just duplicate and duplicate it. And you couldn't possibly say which one is original and which one is duplicated. Whereas the idea of the NFT seems to reintroduce into the world of digital, uh, into the digital world, the idea of originality. I think that's the idea behind it. Exactly. Is that Mm. you, you can then, because it's connected to the blockchain, which is your, it's, it's, basically like a human ID number. It's the thing that is, it's so complicated that there's no way it could be replicated. And therefore it is, it's like a fingerprint. It's only yours, right? Yeah. So if you have a piece of art that's connected to that blockchain, then you can make the argument, I have the original. It doesn't matter that you can copy and paste this and put it online. 
I have, th- this thing is something that I own and it's mine. It would be as if, you know, um, if you were to take a photo of the Mona Lisa, um, you wouldn't say that you own the Mona Lisa. You would say that you own a photo of it. Right. Yeah. And I think that that that's kind of the idea here is that you can bypass that saying and just say, I own the Mona Lisa because I have this, this NFT version of it. So that, that in a nutshell is, is what this idea is. And I won't get into all of the different, um, scams and morally bankrupt things that are going on with NFTs. Um, because I could talk about it for a very long time, but I will say that, um, as, as many bells are going off in your head, I think alarm bells are going off in gamers heads with, uh, the idea that these NFTs will be implemented by a company like Ubisoft. So this, the idea, think of it like this. Do you remember, um, the CSGO, uh, skin lottery thing that happened like a couple of years ago? Yeah. So there was a, it was like a lottery where um, you could win and then sell on skins, right? Uh, yes. Counter-Strike Go skins. And there was also a controversy because the creator of that lottery was involved in its own marketing and it wasn't declared as marketing or as advertisements and so on, right? Exactly. So it was this um, idea that, you know, there would be different rare sort of skins or like weapon skins or things like that in CSGO that you could use cosmetically to show that you had a very rare item. And if you kind of won that in the lottery of CSGO, you could sell it on a a third-party marketplace for a lot of real-world money. And so that's what this seems like with Ubisoft saying that they're going to implement these NFTs. So they are um, calling them digits. Uh, They're saying that um, in the uh, PC version of Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon, it will enable players to acquire, quote, digits, which are collectible in-game vehicles, weapons, and pieces of equipment. Now you may say, okay, well, what's wrong with that? Every game nowadays has a kind of loot box mentality around it, right? These things that you can get. Well, now imagine that that item is incredibly specific to you. So you you actually have, they go so far as to say you're holding stake in the game because you have this item that only belongs to you and you get to determine the value of it along with the other players and sell it on a third-party marketplace. Well, all of a sudden, this is sounding a lot less like a video game and a lot more like a, a weird lottery grift for people. Yeah, it sounds yeah. to me as if I'm, as a player, I'm, I basically automatically become, or I'm encouraged to become or nudged to become a part of the Ubisoft internal stock market or something like that. Exactly. And I think, I think that's what people are um, so upset by. And it should be mentioned that um, this uh, uh, announcement trailer on the Ubisoft um, YouTube channel, uh, it had so many dislikes back when YouTube still had the dislike option um, that it was the, the positive engagement was just 5% of the total engagement. 804, uh, there were 16,270 engagements at the time. 804 of them were likes. 15,466 of them were dislikes. So 
it, I think that people still have a very bad taste in their mouth from things like the CSGO lottery situation. And they also are, if they're aware of NFTs, I think most people are aware that there's something kind of fishy about them. And so to see a company like Ubisoft come in and say, we're going to make this an integral part of our game and kind of set up a, a weird tangential economy around it, I, I don't know that people are very pleased with that. Do you think this is going to be somewhat similar to the idea of, you know, how loot boxes progressed, where it's going to be basically Ubisoft takes that step, then people react very negatively, and then they take a big step back, but still go a little bit in that direction, and then gradually it becomes something that is established within video game culture that games just have NFTs attached to them? I worry about that. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... Um, <laughs> I, I'm just going to read a quote from um, Nicholas Poard, uh, the vice president of Ubisoft Strategic Innovation Lab. So Nicholas says, our, lo our long-term efforts led us to understand how blockchain's decentralized approach could genuinely make players stakeholders of our games in a way that is also sustainable for our industry, placing back into their hands the value they generate through the time they spend, the items they buy, or the content they create online. So this strikes me as, um, as I said before, dipping their toes in the water to kind of gauge the public opinion on something that they're going to do anyway, and I think will inevitably become part of video game marketplaces. I think it is time for everyone who is like me and has never really heard of, well, has heard of it, but never really fully grasped what it actually means. And, and I'm including NFT, I'm including blockchain, I'm including cryptocurrency and all of these things. Things that probably all people who listen to the show are aware of, have heard of, but never maybe, most people don't really have a full understanding. I think it's probably time to read up on it a little bit. And I'm mm. specifically speaking for myself here as well. Time to read up on it and get informed because the thing is that I went to a conference, I was a speaker at a conference in like 2018 and this was a very progressive, you know, like journalist, media, conference, a digital age, that kind of thing. Uh, it's called Republika in, in Germany. It takes place in Berlin and it's a really like a think tank of where you know, the, the big markets and, and journalism and the media is going to head next. And everyone there or most people there were really excited down to the conversations that I had when I was taking a break and I was having like some fries and, and some sausage in a Mensa there, um, were talking about blockchain. Blockchains, NFT wasn't a thing back then, I think, but blockchains and cryptocurrency and all these things. And I think it's now starting to really seep into the basically into the daily consciousness of people, at least those that are engaged with, you know, digital infrastructure in some form. I think that, yeah, it's definitely something I still need to do more research because I, I feel I have a grasp of it, but it is a very complicated thing. And I think that um, the, another way to kind of make it accessible, so for better or for good or ill, uh, this could potentially end up in a ready player one situation <laughs> where we all have our own identity online uh, the metaverse was just announced by Facebook, right? And you have your, you don't actually own anything physically. You just have digital fingerprints on a number of different items. And whether or not that's going to completely take over the world or not, it's certainly something we should all be aware of. I think we should be aware of it, if not only, like, if alone for the fact that 
I presume, at least for the, for the German government, um, that they might have this on their radar. Of course, they're very mm. smart people. But the thing is that, you know, the government, at least in Germany, tends to only like react to such things when basically the the when the child has already fallen into the well, you could say. <laughs> this is a German right. saying. When it already happened, then they're yeah. basically reacting to it. And I think that's why it's good to have it on your own personal radar and try to get some understanding of what this actually means. Because uh, I would assume that... Um, 10 15 years from now it's going to be something that's that we're confronted with that you just maybe not bitcoin but maybe some other kind of cryptocurrency that exists that you can use to pay in like at amazon or various different stores or something i don't know who knows but it's yeah. just something that i'm worried about because i don't understand it really yet that's why thank you for this for this overview that was really very helpful of course number three Something more traditional, but also legal-related. Sony patents the Death Stranding online path-building feature. Mm. Now, we will link the original patent just as any other kind of new story that we picked up in the show notes. And you may recall, dear listeners, and Dan, of course, that there was this crucial online feature in Death Stranding, where... Every player is technically in their own game, exploring their own world. Like, it's not a multiplayer game in a sense that everyone runs around in this place. It's pretty empty. But players can build roads and structures and leave items for others to find and to use. And the more these items or these, uh, you know, structures are being used, the more they improve and, you could say, solidify in this kind of open world. So you would basically have this, like a road that would turn into like a big highway and that would be solid for other players to use as well and to accelerate their progress. On July 31st in 2019, before the game even came out, Sony filed to patent this mechanic. And now on December 7th, 2021, the patent has been confirmed. I looked mm. into it, and listed as the inventor is a certain Hideo Kojima. <laughs> I've heard of this guy before. <laughs> I heard of him before. And the patent, it, it details, this is really, it sounds really mumbo-jumbo, but this is how it starts. Quote, A method for influencing a gaming world of a video game. The method including cross-pollinating a first path using an inter-game communication medium across a plurality of virtual environments, of a plurality of asynchronous gameplays, of a plurality of players <laughs> playing the video game. End quote. So this is, this is mumbo-jumbo, but it is the Death Stranding mechanic. What this means is that if any other developer now wants to use a mechanic in their game that basically has players creating structures that will then be synchronized online and that will improve as other people use them, then Sony could technically sue them. Mm. It's... I, I hope that... Th this is such a morass for me because I hope that this mechanic is used more in video games because it, it has incredible potential Mm. Um, and I think that, uh, from what I know of Death Stranding kind of having a renaissance with the director's cut, more people have played that to the point where I think that 
it's fair to say that if you played Death Stranding when it was released, you had a much more difficult time than you would playing it now because yeah. people have played and left these items and constructed these things, which I think was Kojima's plan the entire time. Um, and that has such great potential for so many different games that I'm a little upset that it's now, <laughs> there may be legal ramifications if other games, you know, want to use this without, I, I suppose, without permission, right? But even so, it, it seems like a fantastic mechanic that maybe is being a little limited here. Yes, exactly. That is the issue that I have with it. That's yeah. why I take umbrage in this idea of, generally, in this idea of patenting um, video game mechanics. Because yeah. the thing is just, imagine a world in which its software had patented <laughs> and patented the first-person shooter, you know? Yeah. This <laughs> is like, <laughs> they could have done it. They could yeah. have done it. They, they could have done it probably with, you know, Wolfenstein 3D or with uh, Doom. They could have done it and pushed for a patent, and it might not have been impossible at the time to get yeah. this as a legit patent. Instead, what they did is they opened it up. They opened it up. They made it available to others. They made Doom a game that is very easy to mod and to, you know, develop other things for so that it expanded, and that's what led to its popularity as well. Mm. I think it is a problem if developers are discouraged from using certain mechanics because they might, even if it doesn't actually actualize, I'm not sure whether Sony's going to go after every single game that does this, but it just incites a certain fear, like such a patent, that you think, oh no, wait, this is a great idea, I would like to implement this, but I better not. And if there's a game in development right now where the dev just realizes, like, damn, I hope this patent, patent would fall through, and now it hasn't, and now they need to change yeah. some central aspects about their game, I'm sorry. And I feel like this is, uh, this is not a good way to go when it comes to, you know, diversifying uh, video game me mechanics and developing them. It also, it, I think, uh, it's, it's frustrating because it is so limiting for people who you know, not everybody can have an idea like Kojima. <laughs> and I yeah. think that, um, but a lot of people can iterate on that idea and make really interesting games. And so it is, uh, it is too bad that there's that extra layer now that people have to get past. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that Death Stranding and frankly, uh, all of, uh, Hideo Kojima's games, um, they also, you know, like lend mechanics and aspects from other games Oh, yeah. And uh, basically improved on them, iterated upon them, used them in a specific way. And I think that um, there's nothing to lose if someone else uses that mechanic as well. Like, it's not it's not like it's going to really harm Death Stranding <laughs> like if no. someone also uses that mechanic or Sony. So I, I find it a bit strange. Well, we're going to see how this develops and whether it actually has any consequences. We don't know that yet because it's a patent. So... <clears throat> well, we'll have to see in to which degree it is actually applied and enforced uh, by mm. Sony. Well, that was our show for this week. It was a great pleasure, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Dear listeners out there, thank you so very much. And thank you to all of those that are already supporting us with uh, being members of Studying Pixels Plus. If you want to join, then remember that you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus. It would also be very helpful if you would just, you know, share this episode on social media. Just, you know, if you liked it, just go ahead and press that share button in your podcasting app and post it on your Twitter, Instagram, or whatever feed, Facebook feed, meta feed. <laughs> <laughs> Sell it on as an NFT. 
and uh, <laughs> submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. We're looking forward to hear from you next week. See you then. See you then. <laughs>